Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. as is always the case, we've had wonderful singing and worship to prepare our hearts for the study of God's Word. You would take your Bible and join me in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and as we consider tonight, Article 5 of the Baptist Faith and Message, God's Purpose of Grace. I cannot think of any text that would be more appropriate for us to consider than Ephesians 1 verse 3 through verse 14. Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 3, reading through verse 14. You'll notice very clearly the Trinitarian nature of this wonderful text. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption, as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and understanding." having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Article 5, God's purpose of grace, reads in this way. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he, number one, regenerates, number two, justifies, number three, sanctifies, and number four, glorifies sinners. So it's very clear that Article 5 on God's purpose of grace is rooted in the prior article on the doctrine of salvation. Now, note the next statement that balances the first one. Uh, it is consistent. What is? Election. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. And what does the doctrine of election rooted in God's grace do? It excludes both boasting and it promotes humility. 
All true believers then endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified, set apart by his spirit, will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Now, believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach, shame on the name of Christ and even temporal judgments on themselves. Yet... They shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Now, when we begin to consider doctrines like election, uh, predestination, uh, foreknowledge, uh, the perseverance of believers, there are many, many texts that speak to these various and wonderful doctrines. And I've noted quite a few of them for you. I'm going to move through them very rapidly. But Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. A verse that contains both importance for foreknowledge and election. And interestingly, an article or a, 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 a scripture not noted are listed above in the scriptural references. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with what kind of love? An everlasting love. Matthew 24, 22, speaking of the tribulation period, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Uh, page 2, John 1, 12 through 13, two of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible. But as many as received him, there's human responsibility. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who, human responsibility, believe in his name. Who were born, born spiritually that is, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so the verse begins with a focus on human responsibility, but it ends with an emphasis upon divine sovereignty. Uh, John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Shall not come to judgment, but has passed from death into life. Uh, crucial text, the next two, John 6, 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. John 17, 6, I have speaking his high priestly prayer to his father. Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me 
out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Acts 9.15, speaking of the Apostle Paul, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Again, that particular scripture is not in the references of this particular article. Acts 13.48, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, there's divine sovereignty, believed. There's human responsibility. Romans 8, 28 through 39, of course, is a classic text on the doctrine of salvation from a number of perspectives. I zero in on verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Some have called this the golden chain of redemption, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and our glorification. Look at the next one, Romans 9, 13 through 18, one of the most troubling verses in the Bible to many people. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore... He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And then the Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 text again that we noted a moment ago. Turn over with me to page 3. And again, the first text you see there is what we read a moment ago, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Move with me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, his poema, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and Here's human responsibility again. Believe in the truth to which he called you. There's divine sovereignty by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for. And we many of us know the song. For I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I commit to him until that Day. Second Timothy 2.10. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Move to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 5. 
We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is what? Incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. Where is it? It's reserved in heaven for you who, now don't miss this, who are kept by the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then one last one, Jude 24 and 25. Now to Him, speaking of God, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen. And again, one of the great verses on our perseverance, interestingly, amazingly to me, not found in the scriptural section of this particular article. So, with that as a massive scriptural overview... What do we say about God's purposes of grace and election? This article is a noble condensation of a beautiful biblical and historically Baptist doctrine. Quote, election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. As I mentioned just a moment ago, the four elements of salvation discussed in article four arise from God's purpose of grace in election. Thus, election is a doctrine that pulsates with the infinite grace of God. In other words, God has a particular love which rests on certain ones to bring them to salvation. God loves all people without exception. But He does love His children with some degree of distinction and particular fatherly care, as again we have seen previously. Indeed, the Scriptures say, whom He foreknew, that is, those He was in a loving relationship with beforehand, He is also predestined. Top of page 4. The confession then rightly calls God's saving choice gracious, for it operates for the good of sinners in spite of their infinite demerit. In other words, God's election can not fail. He administers His decree all the way to the glorification of sinners and to the glory of His beloved Son. Indeed, what more glorious end can be imagined than a predestination that is what? To be conformed to the image of God's Son. Top of the next, or next paragraph. Election then, now don't miss this, election then, does not contradict the free agency of man. In other words, Danny, do you believe that God is sovereign in predestinating and electing? Or do you believe that people are free and responsible? And the answer is yes. Yes. I believe the Bible clearly teaches predestination. I've read a number of verses where the word is right there, so it, it's there. So you've got to believe it. Now, you may understand it differently than some others, as we'll get to in just a moment. But God forbid that you would say, well, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. I don't believe that God chooses and calls. Well, then, in essence, you're saying, I don't believe the Bible. But at the same time, don't dare say, well, I don't believe that humans are free. 
I don't believe that humans are responsible. I don't believe that God will save anyone who repents and exercises faith because then you likewise don't believe the Bible. So one more time, election does not contradict the free agency of man as the Baptist faith, the message so well says. When a person acts, he acts freely or exactly as he is disposed to act. But while dead in trespassing and sins, he is a slave to sin. He freely sins and he sins freely. And without the intervention of God in some way, we would never turn toward or pursue God. In other words, several years ago, Southern Baptist had a, uh, an evangelistic theme entitled, uh, I Found It. Well, there's just one problem with that. It's wrong. You didn't find it. He found you. He's the one who came on a rescue mission. He is the one who was seeking you out. And so apart from his intervention, we would have never gone looking for God. Thus, election manifests God's sovereign goodness by displaying his mercy as well as his justice. And since election results in eternal praise to the glory of God, it is infinitely wise. Dr. Criswell who pastored the First Baptist Church of Dallas for over 50 years, addressed this doctrine and said, and I quote, We have a tendency to back away from the word predestination, to hesitate before the word election, but not so with God, and not so with the Word of God. They are words much used. It is a revelation employed, and it is a truth of God, functional, on which this earth stands and at which the kingdom of God does abide forever. Therefore, I would argue that the word of God must form and shape our understanding of predestination and election, not human reason, not human sensibilities, not even our own human preferences. So, four quick observations. First, what does the biblical term election mean? Well, the verb elect means to choose out for oneself. That's the most basic meaning of the word, to choose out for oneself. Thus, the verb implies a selection of some out of a larger group. Thus, the New Testament frequently uses the adjective elect or chosen to refer to God's people, whom again the Bible also uses in terms of a noun, the elect, those who are elected by God. The biblical teaching then highlights three aspects of election. One, God's graciously, God graciously chose undeserving Israel to be His people. So we have what we call corporate or national election there. Secondly, God graciously chooses or chose individuals to serve in various roles. For example, Jesus describes His choice of Paul to proclaim His name as election. He was elected to be an apostle. He was elected to perform a particular kind of service. So, the biblical concept of election describes God's choice, His initiation, and His plan. Thirdly, as relates to salvation. So keep that in mind. God elected Israel as a nation. God elects certain individuals for service, but then God also elects or chooses others for the gift of salvation. We should also note that the article rightly points out that biblical election is Christocentric. Interestingly, the Bible calls Jesus the elect one. And that the election of believers is in Christ or through Christ. Thus, God elects in love 
and he elects in the beloved. And again, apart from Christ being central in your understanding of this doctrine, I suspect that you will go astray and most likely run into some form of extremism that is contrary to the more sane and I believe straightforward teaching of the Bible. Second, what are some of the practical implications of election? Well, the doctrine of election elicits the believer's worship. In fact, uh, my uh, mentor, Paige Patterson, has often said that many times people get confused about the doctrine of election because they ask the wrong questions. And so a good question to ask is, what are the practical implications of it? And the Bible is clear. It should promote our worship. Furthermore, Paul expressed thanksgiving for the election unto salvation of the Thessalonian believers. Peter quoted the Old Testament to demonstrate that as a chosen elect race, we are to proclaim praise to God. So we've seen the word worship, the word thanksgiving, the word praise. For, furthermore, it is important to note that the New Testament brings together the idea of election and that of holiness. So we are elect unto a new kind of life, a new kind of lifestyle that promotes holiness. And indeed, it should move us to pursue the Christ-likeness for which God chose us. And finally, New Testament also presents the election as the foundation of our assurance and our hope. In other words, if you have, in my judgment, a biblical understanding of election, you cannot help but have a affirmation and a commitment to the doctrine of perseverance and the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Because, again, it is God who saves and it is God who keeps. You didn't save yourself. And you can't lose your salvation. If you could, you would. And so would I. Praise God, as First Peter says, I am kept, you are kept, by the power of God. Thirdly then, what truth about election does the Baptist faith and message emphasize? Well, it says election is the gracious purpose of God. That means God does not elect or choose based on human merit. In other words, God doesn't choose the good people to be saved, and he then damns the bad people to be lost. No, if that were the case, my suspicion is many of you in this room would be damned and lost. I would be, because apart from his grace, I'm not a good person. I'm not desirable. I'm not something that God saw as, as something he needed, or even something that he found valuable, all right? Thus, the Baptist faith and message highlights the purposeful nature of election. God's election progresses towards a goal, encompassing the regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification of sinners. The purposefulness of God indicates that our sovereign God initiated and chose a plan to reconcile sinners unto himself. And he purposed it ultimately that we would be, as Ephesians 1, 4 says, holy and blameless. Now, note my next five or six sentences very carefully. The Baptist faith and message correlates God's sovereignty and human free will. For the Baptist faith and message, these twin truths are not contradictory. They're compatible. The Baptist faith and message also affirms the means of election. In other words, God's election encompasses means to realize his purposes. In other words, even if you have a very strong doctrine of election and predestination, question, how does God bring the elect to himself? Well, the answer is missions, teaching, personal witnessing, 
Evangelism. Public proclamation of the gospel. In other words, the elect are lost until they repent and exercise faith in Christ. And they are lost without knowledge of Christ. And therefore, no one is elect unto salvation apart from the preaching, hearing, and believing of the gospel. Ever how God works that out? All of that is involved in people coming to Jesus. Thus, the elect do not come to Christ apart from a response to the proclamation of the gospel. As I am very fond of saying, Romans 9 cannot be separated from Romans 10. And it must also include Romans 11, especially verses 33, 34, 35, and 36. Fourth, what are the historic Baptist understandings of the doctrine of election? Well, this also and always raises the question of Calvinism, which I have put for you again on a chart that you find over there uh, on page 10, where you see the five points of Calvinism delineated for you there. I've done that before, and so I'm not going to go through that again. But uh, what I want you to understand is there are people uh, who affirm the Baptist faith and message without any reservation but who do understand how election and predestination works differently. And, and that, in fact, the Baptist faith, the message is very generic. It's intentionally generic. In other words, if you were to say, well, help me out, I need more than that. It is basically a modified Calvinistic statement. It's not an Arminian statement. It's not a statement that a Methodist could sign or a Wesleyan could sign or a Nazarene could sign. Why? Because it affirms eternal security. It affirms uh, the perseverance of the believer. And again, folks, some of you in this room tonight, if I were to, you know, put a gun to your head and walk you through the five points, you'd say, well, I'm a one-pointer. I like that perseverance one. I believe that uh, I will persevere to the end. Why? Because I'm kept by God's power. Oh, I got you. Sorry for God to keep you. But it wasn't all right for God to choose you. You ever thought about that? The inconsistency there? There is an inconsistency there. I don't mind God overruling my will to keep me. He just didn't overrule my will to purchase me. Uh, be careful. Uh, there's a real illogic to that that, again, I don't think you have to walk down in an extreme fashion one way or the other. But be that as it may, the Baptist faith and message purposefully, I got it right that time, is a generic statement that will allow different understandings of predestined and election to come underneath it. You say, what are they? Well, basically, there are three big ones, and I'll note them for you very quickly. Some Baptists historically have affirmed what is called conditional election. That is, and this is what I think most people in our pews probably believe, God foresees the faith of the believer, and therefore, on that basis, elects the believer. And to be fair there, actually, God didn't elect you. You elected him. You chose him first, and then he chose you. And again, that's where I think most people in our churches are, because we have such a radical commitment to uh, personal autonomy and uh, self-determination. It's a very American idea, kind of, the, by the way. Maybe that would be a very good biblical idea, but it's a very American idea. So, for example... Adherence of this position would appeal to 1 Peter 1, 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And they define foreknowledge as God seeing in advance your choice for him. William Stevens, who taught at Mississippi College, said it this way, quote, So God does not choose men because of their works, but because of their faith. 
Therefore, he must foresee their faith. Herschel Hobbes, uh, who wrote the Baptist Faith and Message initially and chaired the 1963 committee, used to say it this way. Uh, here's how election works. There are three votes. God voted for you. The devil voted against you. And you now cast the deciding vote. And that's a conditional election, as simply as you could possibly want it. Secondly, some Baptists historically have advocated unconditional election. That is, God's election is not dependent on any condition a human meets. The founding faculty of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary held this view. This is clearly articulated and reflected in the Baptist Confession, the Abstract of Principles, penned in 1858, that all the professors of Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary must sign. W.T. Connor, who taught at Southwestern for years, also held this view, as did the founder of Southwestern, B.H. Carroll. Election does not mean that God instituted a general plan of salvation and decreed that whosoever would, sh uh, would should be saved. And therefore, the man who will to be saved is elected in that he brings himself within the scope of God's plan. It doesn't mean that, uh, Connor says. It means that God has decreed to bring some upon whom his heart has been eternally set who are objects of his eternal love to faith in Jesus as Savior. And actually, that is where I come down, although again, arguing that it happens in such a way as to not violate human responsibility and free will. How it does that, I don't know, but there's no way I biblically could affirm the first view. And there's really no way that I can biblically affirm the third view either, which is what has been called corporate election. That is, God elects a people for himself, not individuals. Stanley Grintz, who passed away some years ago, former professor at Truett Theological Seminary, advocated this view. Grintz said, and I quote, Election is fundamentally corporate. Election, therefore, is bound with a community. We are elected to a community and for community, thus being elect means being in Christ and hence participating in a corporate reality. You say, what does that mean? Basically, Dr. Grintz affirms view one, but he couches it in the language of view three. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, he believes the elect are those in Christ, but that begs a question. How do you get in Christ? And Grinch would say, you choose him. So in choosing Christ, you then become a part of the elect community. But again, bottom line, if you ask, you know, again, gun to my head, who is ultimately, this is the million-dollar question, who is ultimately responsible for my salvation? Is it God or is it me? And view one and view three basically say it's me. View two basically says, it's God, yet God did not do it apart from my repenting and exercising faith. That's why I think view two is the better view, because I think it's more true to the Scriptures. Now, again, for your benefit, I include that Calvinism chart for you uh, over there on page 10, and also on page 11, the major evangelical views of election. And again, I'll tip my hand, and you can look at that on your own. I fall into category number three. I am not an Armenian. 
I'm not a classic five-point Calvinist, but I am a Calvinist in a compatibilistic sense. You can read that and decide whether or not you like my view or you think it's really rotten and you need to go in a different direction. So, back to page seven. The doctrine of perseverance will all feel better now because we'll all agree about this one. Well, unless, again, we have some visiting Wesleyans, Methodists, Nazarene, uh, Episcopalians, Lutherans. In fact, you think about this for a moment. Those who believe in eternal security or perseverance of the believer are in the minority. You say, who believes that? Presbyterians, Baptists, E-Free, Evangelical Free Church. Most of the folks in your Bible churches would. And um, I'm not sure where the Christian Missionary Alliance is. I'm not quite sure where they are on that. I, I would think they would lean in that direction, but I don't know. After that, that's it. That's it. That's it. And so we are in a minority, but even though we may be in a minority, I think the Scriptures are clear that we are indeed kept by the power of God. Hence, you have the section on perseverance. Let's note it quickly. The Baptist faith and message rejects the negative connotations associated with the concept, once saved, always saved. I'm glad that that language is not there. For some, once saved, always saved implies that a person may express faith in Christ and then have assurance of a heavenly destiny as they live as a child of the devil. Nothing could be further from the truth of Scripture and the beauty of this doctrine. The Baptist faith and message strongly affirms the assurance a believer enjoys regarding final salvation. But the believer's assurance, however, is not a specific prayer you may have prayed or a mere past religious experience. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, I walk down an aisle one day. You can walk down an aisle and go to hell. How do I know that I'm saved? Well, I signed a card and filled out a card. And you can sign and fill out a card. And you can die and go to hell. Well, I was baptized. You can go under the water and die and go to hell. Those are the wrong places to look for, in terms of biblical teaching, your assurance of salvation. The Bible does not go that way. Praise God, neither does the Baptist faith and message. No. The BFNM strongly affirms the assurance of believer uh, enjoys regarding final salvation. This assurance, though, is not a specific prayer, one more time, not a mere past religious experience. No, the basis of a believer's assurance is what? 1 Peter 1, 5, the keeping power of God. Thus, the doctrine of perseverance is not a statement about really the perseverance of the saints, but rather it is a doctrine affirming the perseverance of a Savior with his saints or with his people. In fact, Spurgeon much preferred the statement not perseverance of the saints, He preferred the statement, the perseverance of the Savior. We are saved as long as our Savior perseveres in his intercessory prayer on our behalf. And, of course, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Thus, we can be confident that we're saved to the uttermost of our experience. Thus, final statement on page 7, our salvation then is grounded in the action of the Holy Trinity on our behalf. Assurance is Trinitarian, that is, the Father... The Son and the Spirit assure us of our final destiny. Well, let's unwrap some of that very quickly. First, the strong biblical language of God's guarding or keeping power assures us that we will persevere. 
Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, God will render you consistent and unwavering until the end, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter again describes believers as those kept in a state of security through faith for the purpose of salvation. As we read a moment ago, Jude closes his great doxology this way, quote, to the one able to guard you as a sentinel and keep you from falling and able to make you stand without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing. The believer then never trusts in his ability to persevere. Rather, a believer trusts in God's keeping activity. Second, the promises of Jesus reassure the believer. Jesus claimed, quote, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. John 6, 37. Again, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. John 6, 39. Again, the New Testament contains the strongest promises of Jesus regarding assurance in John 10, 28. Jesus said, and I give to them everlasting life. And they will never perish in the least unto the age. Now, note this is wonderful. The Greek New Testament expresses the words of Jesus by means of a double negative. In fact, it would be better to say, I give them eternal life and they will no, never perish or no, not perish. Now, I note, while a double negative is bad English grammar, and it is, it is wonderful theology. It strongly underscores the impossibility of an action happening in the strongest way. Jesus taught the utter impossibility of a believer perishing. Third, the ministry of the Spirit assures a believer. The Spirit functions, the Bible says, as a pledge. Uh, he's the down payment of our salvation. The imagery connotes a deposit obligating the contractual party and serves as a guarantee of full payment at a future time. The King James Version translates the Greek word as earnest or an earnest payment. Thus, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer and specifically the Spirit's work in effecting salvation obligates God through his promise to what? Complete salvation in final redemption. Furthermore. The New Testament describes the Spirit's ministry by the action of sealing. 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, and Ephesians 4. In antiquity, a seal denoted authenticity, fine, ownership, even better, and protection. Fourth, the nature of salvation gives assurance to the saints. Salvation is the act of God, not an action of man. Salvation includes justification, the declaration that one is righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ. This legal declaration cannot be overturned. Further, salvation involves the reception of what kind of life? Everlasting life. Jesus described everlasting life as a present possession of a believer, John 5, 24, if, as some believe... One can fall away and lose everlasting life. Then it's very clear. The logic is irrefutable. The life was not everlasting. Vance Habner, that wonderful North Carolina evangelist, said it in his pithy way. The faith that fizzles before the finish 
was faulty from the first. Thus, the sign of perseverance is continuance in faith. We keep on because we are kept by God. Now, as we close tonight, turn over to page 12 for just a moment and let me summarize for you this very important doctrine. Because throughout my ministry, so many times, even including teaching in Bible college and seminary, I've had students that believe God has called them to the ministry, come into my office and say, uh, Dr. Aiken, Brother Danny, I am convinced that God has called me to the ministry, but I'm not sure I'm saved. Now, I don't know how to work that out logically. I just know that that's their experience and that's what they testify. So what I want to do is show you two things very quickly and then we'll close. What are some reasons that people lack assurance of their salvation? Well, I've given you five of them there on page 12 under Roman numeral number two. Number one, they have a faulty understanding of the fact that it's God who does the saving. Somehow they are confused in believing that they somehow have saved themselves, and therefore they recognize their frailty, they recognize their weaknesses, and therefore they rightly recognize if I saved myself and I'm responsible for keeping myself, then I'm not in a very good situation as far as my eternal destiny is concerned. Secondly, faulty methods of assurance at the time of salvation. If you'll just pray this prayer. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against praying a prayer. I prayed a prayer. I let all four of my sons in praying the sinner's prayer. I do that and have done that many times. But just uttering some words like it's a magical formula, apart from a heart conviction and commitment, will save no one. You've got to have something here in the heart and something here in the head that makes a commitment to. And so, again, we've got to be careful in helping people think that by uttering some Almost mystical, magical words, that's enough. It's, it's not. It's not. They can say the right words and still die and go to hell. The heart must be engaged in what they are confessing. Some doubt God's faithfulness, number three. And usually I've found that sin in the life of a person tends to cause that question to be raised. For they have a lack of proper teaching on the Christian life and they've not been rightly taught the fullness of the doctrine of salvation as it relates to their perseverance. And then, as I said a moment ago, perhaps the one that undergirds at least several of these is presence of sin in one's life. So you say, all right, I don't need to give somebody assurance for praying a prayer. No. Signing a card. No. Being baptized. No. Coming to church every Sunday. No. Tithing like a maniac. No. 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 And I'm not against most of those things, by the way. Okay, I'm for tithing. I'm for coming to church. I'm for baptism, I'm for prayer, I'm for all of that. But it has to be in the right order. So what are some of the practical ways to give assurance? Well, the most important is this. Look at the cross and use God's Word. My youngest son, Timothy, who's on the mission field, uh, sat in my driveway when we lived in Louisville, tears running down his face as a teenage boy, and said, Daddy, I'm not sure I'm saved, and I, I, don't, I just don't know what to do. And it's been bothering me, bothering me, bothering me, bothering me. So I said, well, son, let me ask you a very simple question. And I would ask the same question to any of you tonight if this is an area where you're struggling. When you look at the cross and you consider Jesus hanging there, what's your response? And he said, well, Daddy, I, I'm overwhelmed that he would love me so much that he would go to the cross and die for my sins. It's, it's, it's more than I could ever hope or imagine. And I said, well, son, I don't mean to sound trite, but I'm pretty convinced you're saved. 
Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that to the lost man, it's either what? Foolishness makes no sense. Or it's a stumbling block that he can't get over because it just doesn't seem to make sense that that would be enough. That would be sufficient. So you look to the cross and there you find your assurance. This is what Calvin told us and Luther as well. Secondly, though, that's the objective avenue. Now, there are some subjective avenues, subjective avenues. Ask questions about your experience as a Christian, one, or A. Do you believe the gospel, and are you trusting Christ right now? Do you experience remorse over sin and have a desire to please God? Do you see evidence of fruit in your life? Does the Holy Spirit witness to your spirit that you are a child of God? And when you sin, do you experience the discipline of the Father? Because Hebrews 12 says, if you be without discipline, then you are illegitimate and not a true son, because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. So you look to the cross, recognizing there, rejoicing in the fact that there my sin was dealt with once and for all and forever. And then you ask these other questions, and at the end, I believe you can summarize it in this twofold statement. By his work on the cross, Jesus obtained our salvation. By his work in heaven, Jesus maintains our salvation. When I stand before God and God says, Danny Aiken, why shall I let you into heaven? I'm going to say to him, you should not let me into heaven. I do not deserve to be here. I do not deserve to enter in. But I'm not here standing in my own righteousness and my own merit. But I plead before you, Almighty God, the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross... His glorious resurrection as the full payment for my sin. And the bottom line is this, brothers and sisters. If trusting in Jesus alone and only in Jesus alone will not get you into heaven, then I won't make it. I don't have a plan B. I don't have a backup strategy. I'm banking it all on Jesus, his cross, and his empty tomb. If you are doing that, I think then God's spirit will bear witness to your spirit that you are indeed a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your teaching about the doctrine of election and perseverance. I thank you that I am indeed saved by you from beginning to end. I did repent and exercise faith, and you expect that of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. And your word is crystal clear. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so no one will stand before you at the judgment and say, well, I wasn't elect. I wasn't predestined. You didn't choose me. No. They are responsible for their actions. They are responsible for their unbelief. And they will stand rightly condemned. And, Lord, though I can't explain all of it, I do rejoice in the fact that you sought me out and you saved me. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us. 
in our chapel services.